Senate Foreign Relations Committee will, will come to order. We are here today to consider uh, several important nominations. Dr. Tamara Kaufman-Wittes to be an Assistant Administrator of the United States Agency for International Development to the Middle East. Mr. Michael Allen Ratney to be Ambassador to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Mr. Timothy T. Davis to be Ambassador to the State of Qatar. And Dr. Jita Rayo Gupta to be Ambassador at Large for Global Women's Issues. Congratulations to all of you. And we thank you very much for your public service and your willingness, uh, in many cases, to continue uh, in public service. Uh, you are all eminently qualified for the positions that you have been nominated for. And we thank you for being willing to serve at this challenging time in public service. And we also thank your families. So we would ask when you have an opportunity to address the committee, if you have family members that are present, we would welcome your introduction of, of your family members. Dr. Tamara Kaufman-Wittes currently is working at the State Department as a senior advisor in the Office of the Ambassador-at-Large for Sanction Policy, was for more than a decade a senior fellow in the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution, where she directed research and publications on U.S. policies in the Middle East. Dr. Wittes previously served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs from November of 2009 to January 2012 and was one of the first recipients of the Rabin Perez Peace Award established by President Bill Clinton in 1997. Dr. Wittes is well known as one of our country's leading experts on the politics and development challenges in the Middle East region. The Middle East is obviously a critically important area for U.S. national security, as the president just recently announced he will be visiting that region uh, next month. Michael Allen Ratney is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service with the rank of Minister Counselor and is currently the Acting Deputy Director of the Department of State's Foreign Service Institute. Mr. Ratney recently served as Charge at the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, where I had a chance to, to visit him and see firsthand uh, his incredible talent as a diplomat and the respect that he earned, not just with the Israelis, but with the Palestinians and with the major players in the region. If confirmed, Mr. Ratney would serve at a critical time in U.S.-Saudi affairs as relations have been strained given the kingdom's human rights abuses, particularly its involvement in the brutal murder of U.S. resident and Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi and its controversial military campaign in Yemen. President Biden is scheduled to visit Saudi Arabia in July. The administration has looked to Saudi Arabia and others to step up oil supply amid rising gas prices after the U.S. banned Russian oil imports over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So this will be a critically important assignment, uh, and we look forward to hearing from Mr. Ratney how he will deal with those challenges. Timothy T. Davis is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service with the rank of counselor who most recently served as the executive assistant to the Secretary of State. Prior to that, uh, Mr. Davis served as the U.S. Consul General for Basra and Southern Iraq. He served in the United States Marine Corps for nearly a decade. I understand following in your father's footsteps, who's here, who's a Master Sergeant, it's an honor to have both of the Davises here today. Uh, and you served, including in operations, the Horn of Africa and Iraq before joining the Foreign Service. The government of Qatar played a leading role in addressing the crisis in Afghanistan, assisting with the evacuation last August 
providing diplomatic support and housing more than 58,000 Afghans during the non-combatant evacuation operations from Kabul. On the other hand, I am deeply concerned about the exploitation and abuse of migrant workers in Qatar, with workers exposed to forced labor, unpaid wages, and excessive working hours as the country prepares for the World Cup in November. Dr. Jita Rayo Gupta is currently a senior fellow at the United Nations Foundation and senior advisor to Co-Impact. While at the United Nations Foundation, Dr. Gupta founded and served as the executive director of the 3D program for girls and women. She currently serves as co-chair of the WHO Independent Oversight and Advisory Committee for Health Emergencies and chairs the Global Advisory Board of Women's Lift Health, a new initiative to promote women's leadership in global health. Uh, Dr. Gupta is well qualified for this key position for U.S. foreign policy advancement of equality for women. The position for which you have been nominated are all highly important, each requiring specific skills and experience. Once again, I thank you very much for your willingness to serve, and I will now uh, yield uh, to my colleague and friend, uh, uh, Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, I, too, want to thank our four nominees today for their willingness and, in some cases, uh, their continued willingness uh, to serve the United States of America in these important positions. Uh, as the ranking member of this committee's Near East panel, I'm hopeful to hear from all of our nominees today uh, on how they'll advance American leadership and interests in this pivotal region of the world. While we cannot predict how the face of U.S. relations with the Middle East will change over the coming years, now is a crucial moment for the United States to embrace the collective capabilities of our allies and partners in the region as we turn our attention to strategic great, great power competition. While many are justifiably focused on the war in Ukraine, the looming crisis in Taiwan and the South China Sea, this competition is also taking place in the Middle East. If we want to succeed in this competition, we must find the best way forward to balance our interests while remaining the partner of choice for those in the Middle East. Unlike in years past, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar, and others in the region have options for security partnerships. Our task must be to enforce and uphold our standards while re recognizing the fact that if we move goalposts or set unattainable goals, we must risk, uh, we will risk uh, pushing them closer to China and Russia instead of keeping them in our corner. As the regime in Tehran marches towards a nuclear weapon and foments terror in Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, and throughout the Gulf, we must employ some empathy in understanding the threat that our partners in the region are facing and the urgent task of hardening their countries to defend their people. At the same time, we must not ignore the need to advance real development, diplomatic, and humanitarian priorities. But again, if our policy actions drive them into the arms of Russia and China, we will be undercutting these very priorities. Our witnesses will be approaching all of these challenges from different perspectives, and I look forward to hearing their views on this conversation. Thank you again to our nominees for their willingness to serve the United States and their respective roles. I look forward to our discussion today. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Young. Uh, I'm going to uh, ask consent without objection to put into the record the introductory comments of Senator Shaheen for Dr. Gupta. Senator Shaheen is in the markup of the Senate Foreign uh, uh, Armed Services Committee. 
on their National Defense Authorization Act. So that is the reason why she could not be here. Uh, I read her introductory comments and it's glowing uh, introduction on Dr. Gupta. She says, I cannot think of a more qualified candidate and I look forward to working with you once you have been confirmed. So without objection, that'll be made part of the record. And without objection, I'm going to enter into the record the, uh, the letter from the American Jewish Committee um, in support of Dr. Wittes. With that, Dr. Wittes, glad to hear from you. Thank you, Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Young, distinguished members of the committee. I'm so grateful for your consideration today. I'm deeply honored by the trust placed in me by the President and the Vice President and by the support of USAID Administrator Samantha Power. And I can never sufficiently express my thanks to my husband, Ben, who's here today, and my sons, Gabe and EJ. I was born at a US Army hospital in Ankara, Turkey, where my father was serving at our embassy on behalf of the US Information Agency. As a young adult, I lived in Israel on kibbutz and then again while studying at Tel Aviv University. I've spent over 20 years working on Middle East policy and traveled through nearly every country of the region. And I was also privileged to serve the American people in the Near East Affairs Bureau at the State Department, where I worked with our embassies across the region to support civil society and democratic reforms. And I organized the first wave of US assistance to Tunisia after the uprising in 2011. So engagement with the governments and peoples of the Middle East has been part of my entire personal and professional life. And that's why I'm so excited at the prospect of leading USAID's Middle East Bureau and so grateful for your consideration. The region today presents tremendous challenges and human suffering, as well as opportunities to build greater human security, stability, and prosperity. Stabilizing the Middle East and strengthening our partnerships there will advance American interests and values while enhancing U.S. national security. The people of this region are overwhelmingly young and seek a better future. So lasting stability demands human security and governments that are transparent, responsive, and accountable to their people. It's essential that America's civilian engagement in this region our diplomatic and economic engagement, and especially our development assistance, be robust and persistent. All of Administrator Power's priorities for USAID globally, including COVID response, fighting corruption, advancing democracy and diversity, frame the work ahead in the Middle East. Many states in the region, including key American partners, have been hit hard by COVID-19, a health crisis and an economic contraction layered on top of existing crises in governance and security. Social and political and economic progress will be absolutely key to regional stability, and USAID's development work is a central tool in that effort. Administrator Power is also focused on pushing back on the people, People's Republic of China's predatory model of development, combating corruption, and supporting democratic progress. And if I'm confirmed, that will be a focus of my work as well. Iran's destabilizing influence around the region, bitter conflicts in Syria and Yemen, and a tough political environment in Libya all present obstacles to promoting stability and prosperity in the region. USAID provides life-saving support now and can play a key role down the road in securing the peace. 
Now, despite all these challenges, I also see opportunities for the United States. I'm grateful for this committee's bipartisan support for the Abraham Accords. As I said when they were first announced, they relieve Israeli's sense of isolation and they reflect shared interests between Israel and her neighbors. The Accords offer a foundation for more cooperation between Arab states and Israel on shared interests, including on development. And so if I'm confirmed, I look forward to engaging with you on how we can build on the Abraham Accords to bolster positive engage engagement across the region on issues like energy, environment, water, and health. Another opportunity is MEPA, the Nidaloe Middle East Partnership for Peace Act. I believe strongly in the power of people-to-people -people engagement. It can encourage leaders to take difficult steps, and it can rebuild Israelis and Palestinians' hope in the possibility of coexistence. If I'm confirmed, I look forward to working with you on this exciting new initiative. I understand that advancing stability in the Middle East in the face of crisis, conflict, and challenge is no simple task. I want to emphasize to you that I see no monopoly on wisdom on these issues. My commitment to you is to open and honest engagement, transparency, dialogue with Congress, with the shared goal of advancing American interests. I'm so grateful for your consideration and look forward to your questions. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for your, your testimony. Mr. Ratney. Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Young, distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to be the United States Ambassador to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. I'd like to thank the President and Secretary Blinken for the confidence they've shown in me with this nomination. If confirmed, I commit to working closely with this committee and with the U.S. Congress more broadly on our country's critical national security interests in Saudi Arabia. I've spent more than 30 years in the Foreign Service, much of that in the Middle East, and I found that Saudi Arabia represents so much of what is compelling and at the same time challenging about working in the region and advancing U.S. interests there. The prospect of being confirmed as U.S. Ambassador to Saudi Arabia is very exciting, and I'd like to take a moment to thank my wife, Karen Sasahara, who's also a Foreign Service officer and is with us today, as well as my father and my family for all their support. If confirmed, I'm committed to a strong and sustainable U.S.-Saudi partnership that advances U.S. interests and reflects U.S. values. We have so much at stake in this relationship, encouraging the modernization project underway, including on interfaith tolerance, building on our vital counterterrorism cooperation, working to help Saudi Arabia defend its territory and deter Iran's aggressive behavior, helping to end the horrific war in Yemen, stabilizing global energy markets, deepening our engagement on human rights, and solidifying links with the many thousands of young Saudis, men and women, building their country's future. My top priority will be the protection of US citizens. The Iran-backed Houthis in Yemen launched more than 400 cross-border attacks last year alone on infrastructure, schools, mosques, and workplaces, endangering the 70,000 US citizens there, along with the Saudi population. If confirmed, I will work to strengthen Saudi defenses through security cooperation and training, demonstrating the durable American commitment to our partners and allies and to our values. The U.S. has a powerful interest in ending the war in Yemen, a tragic conflict that has left many lives and families destroyed and the Yemeni population impoverished. To that end, the President ended U.S. support for offensive operations in Yemen, even as we remain committed to helping Saudi Arabia defend its people and territory. Fortunately, over the last two months, the warring parties have accepted 
and recently extended a truce, bringing a measure of relief to millions of Yemenis. This truce would not have been possible without Saudi Arabia's support. I look forward to working closely with our US Special Envoy for Yemen to support UN-led efforts to transform that truce into a durable and inclusive resolution to the conflict. Iran poses a significant threat to US and Saudi interests, as well as to those of our other regional allies and partners. We must work with our Saudi partners to counter Iranian threats to global energy flows, regional stability, and the lives of our fellow US citizens in the region. If confirmed, I will prioritize working with Saudi leaders on mitigating and containing Iranian threats to these interests. The President and the Secretary have rightly made human rights a key pillar of our foreign policy. This was a key aspect of the administration's reorientation of the U.S.-Saudi bilateral relationship, and we consistently have made clear to Saudi officials that progress on human rights will help strengthen the bilateral relationship and make it more sustainable over the long term. The Saudis have made important reforms already, including concrete steps to integrate women into the workplace and economy, but these reforms are incomplete. If confirmed, I will continue to make that a priority. The United States and Saudi Arabia have extensive economic ties and have confirmed my team and I will work hard to support American businesses in the Saudi market, especially as Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030 economic program presents new opportunities for Americans to compete. Saudi Arabia is, of course, a major player in global energy. Recently, the OPEC Plus ministers endorsed a recommendation to increase production quotas in July and August. This will hopefully contribute to providing relief to Americans struggling with high gas prices, though it does not necessarily address the broader factors now destabilizing global energy markets, particularly Russia's unprovoked and unjustified war against Ukraine. Energy supplies and encouraging a Saudi energy policy that aligns with U.S. priorities will be a major focus of my discussions with the Saudi government. The United States and Saudi Arabia established diplomatic relations back in 1931. Over the years, as our relationship has become more complex and multifaceted, it has remained key to U.S. national security. If confirmed, I will work hard to ensure that the U.S.-Saudi partnership serves U.S. interests and reflects U.S. values. I look forward to your questions. Well, well thank you very much for your comments. We'll now go to Mr. Davis. <clears throat> Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Young, distinguished members of this committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to, the United, to be United States Ambassador to the State of Qatar. I'm honored by this nomination and grateful to the President and Secretary Blinken for their confidence, for the confidence they've shown in me. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with this committee and Congress to advance U.S. foreign policy and national security interests in Qatar. I want to thank my family, Patty and Parker, who are here today. I'm so grateful for their support and sacrifice. Patty, in particular, has carried the burden of being both parents with grace and has helped create a smart, thoughtful young man in parks. They exemplify the dedication and service of all of our Foreign Service families. I want to also recognize family members lost, Robbie and Jim. My father, Carly, served as a U.S. Marine for over 30 years with service from Vietnam to Lebanon. And my mom, Eddie, has been the foundation of a family of Marines. They're both with us today. The family of Marines include my sister, Yolanda, her husband, Mark, and two of my uncles, Isaac and Woody. My sister, Tammy, is a university research nurse. My grandparents, Cloty and Jack Davis, Edna and Reverend Arthur Johnson, built a foundation in Mississippi out of hard work and faith. 
that I sit before you today is a testament to their belief in an America of great possibility. If confirmed, I would be only the eighth African-American ambassador to be posted to the Middle East. My son Parker asked last week if my nomination was a big deal for the Davis family. I told him his great-grandparents would not believe it, but, they, but they, they had worked hard every day of their lives to make it possible. As a New Orleanian, I know firsthand the benefits of a strong bilateral relationship with Qatar. When Katrina destroyed communities and killed thousands in 2005, Qatar donated $100 million in humanitarian aid for medical care, reconstruction of homes and places of worship, and educational scholarships. I have stood in the Boys and Girls Club in Past Christiane, Mississippi, that was rebuilt with Qatari funds. Their generosity, quite simply, helped rebuild lives. Our partnership with Qatar again yielded dividends when the United States withdrew from Afghanistan, and Qatar opened its doors as a critical transit site for over 75,000 US citizens, lawful permanent residents, and Afghans. Qatar is still helping with our efforts to resettle Afghans, and if confirmed, I would work to deliver on President Biden's commitment to take on Afghans who work side by side with US forces by continuing that cooperation. Mr. Chairman, I know from my decade of service as a Marine, including overseas deployments in Iraq and the Horn of Africa, that we cannot defend our country without support from our allies and partners. Security and defense cooperation is vital to our strong relationship with Qatar. Since 1996, Qatar has hosted al Air Base, our largest base in the region, and home of US CENTCOM's forward operating headquarters. Qatar is a safe, secure, and welcoming home to 8,000 US military personnel. President Biden designated Qatar as a major non-NATO ally earlier this year as a testament to our longstanding strategic partnership. The President and the Secretary have been clear that human rights are a pillar of our foreign policy. If confirmed, a primary focus of our bilateral, enga bilateral engagement will be to advance human rights and encourage full implementation of labor reforms Qatar has made in previous years. I believe honest conversations about human rights will make our relationship stronger and more resilient. Qatar plays an important role in bolstering global energy security, as, and as our U European partners look to reduce their dependence on Russian oil and gas in the wake of Russia's brutal and unprovoked war in Ukraine. If confirmed, I would encourage Qatar's positive contributions. I also would make it a priority to continue working to address, together to address the climate crisis, including by working with Qatar to continue its progress on reducing domestic methane emissions. Qatar's economic assistance to and diplomatic engagement with the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza helps reduce tensions in the region. If confirmed, I would work to further develop the pragmatic relationship between Qatar and Israel and further regional stability, stability and security underpinned by the Abraham Accords. Our commercial relationship with Qatar directly benefits the American people, and if confirmed, I would seek to deepen commercial ties. Qatar has already invested tens of billions of dollars in the US economy and wants to increase uh, that including through engagement with state governments. Finally, as Qatar hosts the FIFA Men's World Cup tournament this year, my highest priority will be ensuring the safety, security, and dignity of visiting US fans. Mr. Chairman, thank you for the opportunity to testify today, and I look forward to your questions. Well, Mr. Davis, thank you for your testimony. Uh, we do note that there are three generations of your families here with your parents and your son. And Parker, we want you to know your father's appointment is a very big deal and that he has made an incredible contribution to the progress and peace globally. So it's a, 
It's wonderful to have your family present with us today. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. With that, Dr. Gupta. Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Young, and members of the committee, it is an honor to be before you as President Biden's nominee to be the next U.S. Ambassador at Large for Global Women's Issues at the Department of State. Here with me today are my husband, Arvind, and our daughter, Nena, whose commitment to justice inspires me every day. I want to underscore how much their love and support mean to me, as well as to as that of all my friends and family who are probably watching online, particularly my late parents, Sarah and Srini Rao, who modeled for me the value of public service. I'm grateful for the trust placed in me by the President and Secretary Blinken to serve the American people and advance the economic rights, leadership, and safety of women and girls around the world. If confirmed, I pledge to work closely with the administration and Congress in a bipartisan way to lead the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues and the integration of gender equality across the work of the department. Research suggests countries are more prosperous and peaceful when women have economic security and are fully able to participate in their societies. Investing in women and advancing their human rights as the Office of Global Women's Issues is mandated to do is one of the most powerful ways to advance US foreign policy interests and national security priorities. Mr. Chairman, I'm proud to be a US citizen and a first-generation immigrant. I belong to a family of professional women, each of whom dedicated their lives to serving their communities and from a family of men who supported them fully. I was aware that the opportunities available to me and the roles exemplified by the women in my family were not the same as those available to the majority of women globally. This led me to focus my doctoral research on understanding the barriers that women face in pursuing a career and ultimately propelled me toward a career focused on rectifying the inequities experienced by women, and that became both my passion and my profession. Over the past three decades, as the leader of a gender and development research institution, a senior executive of a multilateral organization, and as an advisor to philanthropies, I have learned that economic security and the guarantee of health and personal safety are critical ingredients for women to thrive and prosper. And when they do, so do their families, communities, and nations. It is for this reason that I have dedicated myself to advocating for evidence-based policies and programs to allow women and girls to fulfill their economic and leadership potential and conduct their lives with dignity without fear of violence or discrimination. Through that work, I witnessed the courage, resourcefulness, and resilience of women in the face of seemingly insurmountable challenges, such as in the Zaatari camp for Syrian refugees in Jordan or in the Rohingya camps in Bangladesh. From the women entrepreneurs in Kenya and India who sustain small businesses despite limited access to financial services, to the brave women in Liberia who mobilized against great odds to demand peace for their families and communities, I have seen women use the limited resources they have to provide for their families and protect others. Mr. Chairman, the status of women and girls has improved since I began my career. However, the pace of change has been slow and the gains are vulnerable to backsliding. COVID-19 has forced many women to leave their jobs and countries across the globe report sharp increases in violence against women and girls. 
The pandemic, however, is not the only threat facing women globally today. They are uniquely affected by the climate crisis, the weakening of democratic institutions, and the conflict, political instability, and fragility that characterize more countries today than ever before. Today, in real time, we are all witnessing the courage and resilience of Ukrainian women as they fight alongside men and seek safety for their children and families. Simultaneously, we watch in awe and determination the Afghan women who, despite the threat of imprisonment and torture, are protesting increasingly stringent limits that are being placed on their rights by the Taliban. Those brave women need their voices amplified and championed. Women's equality is a moral and economic imperative of US foreign policy. It has transcended both Democratic and Republican administrations ever since the position of ambassador at large for global women's issues was established in 2009 with bipartisan congressional support, the issue has been a foreign policy priority. If confirmed, I will continue this bipartisan tradition and work closely with interagency, civil society, government, and private sector partners, and especially with Congress, to advance the mandate of the office to integrate gender equality throughout foreign policy. I confess that I can almost hear my parents say now, enough with the talk, go get the job done. So should I be confirmed? I reaffirm to you, I'm ready to get the job done. Well, thank you, Dr. Gupta, for listening to your parents. Um, <laughs> this committee has a, a great tradition of working across party line, of working with the executive branch on foreign policy. We pride ourselves in the unity that we can have between the Congress and the executive branch, but maintaining the separation of branches. That depends upon the cooperation of our confirmed representatives. So we have four questions that we're going to ask you, each one of you to answer by a simple yes or no. That is extremely important for this committee to be able to carry out its work on behalf of the American people. So I'm going to ask all four of you, you'll respond to each question individually. Do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? That's assuming you all are confirmed. Do you agree to do that? Yes, sir. Yes. 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 Do you commit to keep this committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes. 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 Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation with policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact? Yes, sir. Yes. 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 Do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee or its designated staff? Yes. 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 Well, congratulations. You passed the first test. I'm, I'm going to ask, uh, the, we'll have five-minute rounds, and um, we, we'll probably be able to get to a second round. Uh, let me start on the human rights front, uh, and, and, and I'll start with Dr. Gupta. Uh, each one of you have a, a major roles to play in regards to advancing American human rights. Women are under attack globally, as you pointed out in your testimony, but they're particularly vulnerable in Ukraine. As we know, the men, because of the policy, many women have been separated from their, their uh, men have been separated from their families, they're subject to being abused, they're subject to trafficking, et cetera. And in Afghanistan, we invested a great deal. And part of the reason for our investment was to, to help and respect the rights of women in Afghanistan. Now that we are no longer physically present, it's much more challenging. So tell me how you're going to 
deal with those two concerns of, that we have in regards to the welfare of women in Ukraine and in Afghanistan. Thank you, Senator. Um, I agree with you, Russia's unprovoked attack on Ukraine has had severe impacts on the health, safety, and rights of women there. Just as the women left behind in Afghanistan are um, suffering the rollback of their rights under the rule of the Taliban. The majority of women displaced in Ukraine, as we have all seen, um, are women, children, and the elderly. And I think if confirmed as part of the women's peace and security agenda in Ukraine, I would like to see three streams of work move forward. One is to have methods for documentation, but documentation that is survivor-centered and that is um, 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 trauma-informed to be able to document uh, acts of sexual violence in particular. I was very disturbed recently to hear the report from the SRSG Patton after her visit to Ukraine, where she got credible reports of rape, gang rape, um, being used as a weapon of war. Um, and I would like to see um, that being documented and perpetrators being brought to account. Um, obviously, humanitarian assistance should still be targeted to women and children who are most in need or seeking refuge in other countries, but also those who are trapped uh, seeking shelter in, within Ukraine. Um, and I would like to establish, like to see if the communication can be established with high-level women uh, still in Ukraine so that we can know what the situation is and continue to monitor it, monitor it regularly. In Afghanistan, it's sad to see that the greatest gains that have been made, I visited there, Senator, um, many years ago and met many of the brave women rights leaders and uh, could see that the gains that they had made. So to see those roll back now is particularly traumatic. I have been involved in a neighborhood effort to um, help resettle Afghan families in Northern Virginia and the family that I am taking care of, uh, I get firsthand reports of the trauma they went through um, because of the uh, takeover by the Taliban. Uh, if confirmed, I will work with Special Envoy Amiri um, who has been appointed by Secretary Blinken to be placed in the office of uh, GWE. Um, and I will work closely with her to, to pursue two lines of effort. To, one, to make clear to the Taliban through our international partners that normalization and any relaxation of, uh, of the sanctions is contingent upon, upon women's rights being upheld. And uh, to find ways uh, to continue to assist Afghan people through multilateral organizations so that the money is safeguarded and doesn't fall into the wrong hands. Um, so that's what I hope I will be able to do if I'm Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Mr. Ratney, I heard your priorities, which are important for the United States. We certainly need the Saudis to be more sensitive on the oil prices. We want them to be more engaged in regards to uh, Russia and Ukraine. We certainly would like to see progress made to normalization between the Saudis and the Israelis. But this all needs to be wrapped within our values. The outstanding lack of accountability on the tragic death of Khashoggi is an issue that America cannot ignore. So tell me how you establish the clear message to the Saudis, if you're confirmed, that the human rights abuses in that country are ones that we're going to continue to put a spotlight on 
and have consequences in our relationship. Thank you, Senator. And let me say at the outset that the murder of Jamal Khashoggi was just a heinous act. I, I can't say that I knew him well, but I met him a few times and he was a decent man and no decent person deserves what happened to him. Uh, the administration has taken some steps in that regard, including uh, declassifying and publishing uh, the intelligence community's assessment of responsibility for his murder. Uh, numerous sanctions from state and treasury have been issued, including against the uh, members of the unit that was responsible for the murder. Uh, and we've used statutory authority to implement what we've called the Khashoggi ban, which is essentially to say that those who would reach out across borders to suppress dissent uh, will face consequences, including an inability to travel to the United States. So those are consequential measures, and I think they would have uh, a powerful dissuasive impact on those who would contemplate that sort of uh, act in the future. More broadly than that, the president has made clear uh, that he has elevated human rights as a pillar of U.S. foreign policy globally, and Saudi Arabia is no different. Uh, and clearly, if confirmed, that would be a major element of my discussions with the Saudi leadership uh, and more broadly with Saudi society. We've seen a bit of progress there in certain areas, including things like freedom of expression and the rights of women, uh, judicial transparency. These are areas where we have uh, emphasized in our, inter, in, our, in our conversations with Saudi leaders and would most assuredly continue to be prominent on our agenda, my agenda, if confirmed, certainly the president's agenda during his upcoming trip. Um, I think it's important that we have these straightforward, these forthright conversations with the Saudi government. Uh, I take your point absolutely that it is, continues to be a mixed picture. Even the, uh, even the advances which I think the Saudi government has achieved uh, there are instances, there's a lot of work left to be done before we can call it systemic change. Thank you. Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, congratulations again to uh, all of our nominees uh, for your nominations. Dr. Wittes, in 2020, you indicated that you were not in favor of the Abraham Accords. On social media, you said you agreed with an article that called the deal a triumph for author authoritarianism. You suggested the deal was, uh, quote, oversold, unquote, and that Middle Eastern countries normalizing relations with Israel was a, quote, betrayal of Palestinian interests, unquote. I'm curious to hear if your views have changed uh, in the two years since. Senator, thank you for the opportunity to uh, be very clear about my views. I support the Accords. I support the profound transformation that they've wrought in the region. Um, and I said publicly when they were signed that they're a boon to the Israeli government and to Israelis who have long felt isolated in their neighborhood. Uh, that's the profound transformation we see, not just at the government to government level, but at the people to people level. And it's very meaningful. Um, I have written that they strengthened the pro-American coalition in the region. And before I was nominated, I encouraged the Biden administration to follow up on the accords uh, to promote regional cooperation that would advance peace and stability. So I think my record is clear. Not to me. How do we reconcile all those statements, which were just crystal clear, with uh, the statement that uh, the, the deal was a triumph for authoritarianism and that the deal was oversold. Um, if your views have changed, that would be helpful to me. They're quite easy to reconcile. If instead 
it's my job to reconcile the previous statements with the current views. I'm having difficulty, so help me out. Senator, thank you. Uh, so I will say I was skeptical that other countries would join the UAE in the Accords when the UAE first made its announcement in August of 2020, and I was wrong about that. Uh, we've seen Morocco, we've seen Sudan, we've seen Bahrain come in, and that, I think, creates tremendous opportunity that we need to seize. Thank you. I do appreciate that. Um, Doctor, last week it was reported that the uh, now-resigned president of the Brookings Institution was an unregistered foreign agent on behalf of one of Brookings' donors. He's not a nominee before the Senate for consideration. I want to be crystal clear about that. Uh, but uh, we, as, as policymakers who, who often refer to Brookings' material, must ask the uncomfortable question about whether or not Brookings remained impartial in its scholarship, especially that which focused on the Middle East. Do you believe that we can trust the scholarship and independent views presented by a think tank that receives foreign funding? Senator, thank you. Let me speak to Brookings and my work at Brookings. Every grant agreement that supported my work and the work that I supervised included strong language guaranteeing the independence of that work. I have absolute confidence that that work was conducted with independence from donors and that it stands on its own merits. I, uh, I had no knowledge of any of these disturbing allegations regarding General Allen. I never discussed research on Qatar with General Allen. I never participated in fundraising from foreign governments with General Allen. Thank you. I, th I think it's important that you got that on record. Thank you so much. Um, doctor, are you willing to urge Brookings to voluntarily work with this committee so that we can have a full accounting of foreign donations to the institution, especially funding that supported the work at the Center for Middle East Policy? Senator, all nonprofits, I think, have to um, demonstrate their independence from donors. I think Brookings uh, has strong policies on transparency, on conflict of interest, on research independence. I'm no longer employed there, as you know. Uh, so I certainly hope that they will live up to their values and their policy. Would you be willing to urge them to voluntarily uh, work with the committee in furtherance of, of living up to their values, as you've characterized it? Um, Senator, I would like them to be as transparent as possible. Okay. I think the work stands on its own. I would too. Um, while director for the, of the center, did you, doctor, advocate, including informally, to any federal employee on issues relating to the region, especially relating to the affairs of the Gulf Cooperation Council or member states? Did I advocate? Yes. No, Senator. My job was to put forward policy recommendations to the public, and that's what I did. Docker, thank you for uh, your answers to my questions. Chairman? Senator Schatz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Ranking Member. Thank you to all of you and your families uh, for your willingness to serve, and in many cases, uh, continue to serve. Uh, Mr. Ratney, uh, OPEC countries are producing oil at levels well below their collective quota due in large part to the sanctions uh, related to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The administration has made very reasonable requests of the Saudis to ramp up oil production and make up for the shortfall. 
And this, just to be clear, this isn't some huge favor we're asking. Saudi Arabia has spare capacity that it could draw on to quickly make up for the underproducers in the group. If stable energy markets are a key goal of U.S.-Saudi relations and the Saudis are not holding up their end of the relationship, why make concessions on other key objectives like human rights? Thank you, Senator. Uh, at the outset, let me say I don't think we are making concessions on human rights. I think it will remain, has been, and will remain a forthright element of our dialogue with the Saudi government. On the specific issue of energy, um, you mentioned, and I think we need to start by pointing the finger directly at the immediate cause of the global instability in energy markets, and that is Russia's utterly unjustified invasion of Ukraine and all of the uh, implications of that war that has taken place. Uh, dealing with... Let me ask the question another way. Part of our relationship with Saudi Arabia has to do with oil production. Is that fair? Yes. And a reasonable expectation is that during a global crisis, when necessary to stabilize prices, they would step up and do so, especially when they don't have to do much other than just make the choice. Is that a reasonable expectation? Sure. So I was actually getting to that point because, in fact, this has been a major topic of discussion with the Saudi government. And we're gratified to see that OPEC Plus, this larger group in which Saudi plays a leadership role, made a decision to increase their quotas for July and August considerable, something like a 50% increase in their quotas, which should have some impact on uh, global oil supplies and ultimately uh, gas prices. It, it's, not, uh, it's not the silver bullet. It's not the answer to all of that. The administration, the U.S., and some of our partners have also made the strategic decision to release stocks of our global uh, oil reserves. Um, there's a lot more diplomacy to be done on this, and I think conversations, forthright conversations about Saudi's contribution to stability of global energy markets has to be a part of our conversations with the Saudis, and if confirmed, that would certainly be a part of my dialogue. Uh, thank you. Um, let's talk a little bit about arms sales. You know the administration has to notify Congress in advance of major arms sales um, given what we all know about actions in Yemen and human rights violations, what kinds of weapons are appropriate to sell to Saudi Arabia and what kinds are inappropriate? So there's a technical element to that uh, answer, and I want to be careful because it's not uh, something that I have been heavily involved in or involved in at all with respect to Saudi prior to my preparations for this confirmation hearing. Um, I will say, uh, as part of the president's commitment to solving, ending the war in Yemen through principled diplomacy. He also made a decision to end support for uh, offensive military operations in Yemen. Um, at the same time, he also made a commitment to ensure that, the Saudi, uh, that Saudi Arabia had the ability to defend itself. And Saudi Arabia was also facing uh, an onslaught, really, of rockets and drone attacks from the Iranian-supported Houthis directed at people and infrastructure and others in Saudi Arabia. So it's a balance we need to strike the decisions on what constitutes support for uh, offensive military operations and the specific weapon systems associated with that, that has to get considered on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, my colleagues at the State Department look at a variety of factors, including how those weapon systems have been used in the past. Uh, again, yeah, I, would, I would just offer that you know some of this is about end-use monitoring, some of this is about transparency in the country, and some of this is a, is a judgment for Congress to make because whether or whether a weapon system or a weapon is defensive or offensive depends on the circumstances, right? And um, and that's this is the hard part. I agree. It is. It's a hard. It's a judgment that has to get made, and it's one that I think we're committed to doing in full transparency and consultation with Congress. 
Uh, final question. According to media reports, uh, China is helping Saudi Arabia manufacture its own ballistic missiles. The Saudi government has uh, uh, has government ministry linkages to Huawei and has explored the possibility of selling oil in Yuan. Um, how specifically would you address PRC policies that undermine regional security with the United States vis-a-vis um, -vis Saudi Arabia? Thank you for the question. You know, as Secretary Blinken made clear in a speech he gave at George Washington University just a couple of weeks ago, uh, the, the challenge, the U.S. challenge of dealing with China, uh, it's, it's a global competition. It's not restricted to Asia or any one country, and certainly Saudi Arabia is no exception. Um, I don't know. China has and Saudi Arabia have a significant trade relationship. I think China is probably the largest purchaser of Saudi oil. There's a bit of Chinese investment in Saudi Arabia. I don't know that there are significant uh, defense relationships. Um, the report you cite is one that I've seen in the media, but I know nothing more than that. And I think uh, I would suggest a briefing in a different setting from some of my colleagues. But let me just say that uh, this challenge of dealing with China, the risks of dealing with China, particularly a China that pursues policies that are utterly antithetical to our own values and the values of even Saudi Arabia, uh, including uh, genocide in Xinjiang, for example. That's something that we have to make clear to our Saudi partners, to all our partners globally. Thank you. I understand Senator Portman is available through WebEx. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and thanks to the nominees for stepping up to serve. Uh, again, many of you have already in public service. Uh, we appreciate your continued service, as I've talked to Mr. Ratney about. Uh, I've, I've listened with great interest to the uh, back and forth, um, Dr. Wittes, with you and Senator Young. I'm the co-author of what's called the Is Israel Relations Normalization Act, which is now law. It was signed into law in March, and it promotes uh, the so-called Abraham Accords and their expansion. And the one question I would have, in addition to the ones that you've already answered uh, regarding your previous comments about the Abraham Accords is whether you're committed to this and committed to pursuing a policy agenda, which would be deepening the existing Abraham Accord agreements and expanding to other countries, including some countries whose ambassador nominees are with us today, uh, like Saudi Arabia. So would you be committed to expanding it and would you be committed to deepening the existing relationships? Senator Portman, thank you. And the answer is yes, absolutely. Um, I, I, I won't uh, prolong this, and it, it does seem counter to the, your previous comments, but I'm glad that you've had a change of heart, and I think it is incredibly positive in terms of uh, peace in, in the Middle East, not just for Israel, as you noted, but uh, for those countries that choose to uh, connect in that way. Uh, Mr. Davis, uh, Qatar has become a significant producer of liquefied natural gas, as, as you know, including for export. Last month, they signed an energy cooperation deal with Germany, which I was glad to see. Um, they need new sources of energy in Germany, obviously, and other parts of Europe to uh, get away from their dependency on, on Russia. Can you talk a little about that and what role you expect to play in expanding that U.S. cooperation uh, with Qatar to, with regard to energy production and particularly with regard to exports that relate to the uh, Ukraine-Russia war? Uh, Senator, I appreciate the question. Uh, in fact, uh, you make a good point about uh, uh, Russia's aggression in Ukraine. Uh, Qatar has been very clear 
uh, about their view uh, that uh, that Russia's aggression in Ukraine uh, was uh, is unjustified. Uh, as you note, uh, they've signed a deal with Germany. Uh, they've worked with the European Union uh, to um, uh, provide whatever capacity they have uh, to the EU. Uh, they've also made clear uh, that uh, countries in Asia and around the world cannot, uh, during this war, outbid uh, European countries on current contracts. Um, the truth is that, uh, that uh, Qatar uh, is leading the way on liquid natural gas uh, and working to build capacity uh, through a couple of deals that they have in the United States, uh, the Golden Pass, uh, LNG terminal uh, in Texas, uh, and a petrochemical uh, plant uh, in which they've invested $8 billion also in Texas. Uh, but the countries have made clear that they want to be a resource uh, for the Europeans uh, during this time. Uh, and if confirmed, uh, it will be a priority for me to work with the countries uh, to ensure that we identify uh, areas of cooperation and opportunities uh, for helping alleviate the energy crisis in Europe. Senator Portman, we're not hearing you. We're still not hearing you. Sorry about that. I, can you hear me now? Yep, you're, you're, you're on. We had a, a technical issue here with the, with the mute button. Um, so, Mr. Davis, I was just saying I appreciate so much uh, your response to that. I was recently uh, with Sheikh Mohammed, who's the foreign minister and uh, of Qatar, and he made a uh, very clear to me that they're taking a proactive approach here, both with regard to Russia's brutal attack on, on Ukraine and also with regard to this issue of helping Russia to wean itself from Russian sources of energy. So I think you can play a very important role there. And, and I, again, thank you for your previous service and your willingness to step forward. Uh, I think you will find that uh, Qatar wants to deepen our relationship and wants to be uh, an active player in this current, current problem. Uh, Dr. Gupta, just quickly, uh, my time is running out here. Um, you have expressed strong support for access to abortion as a reproductive right. You have publicly opposed the Mexico City policy. You have urged the World Health Assembly to classify sexual and reproductive health services as essential services. My question for you is, are you aware of all the statutory restrictions on the use of taxpayer money to perform abortions or to advocate for or against them? It would include the Leahy Amendment, the Helms Amendment, uh, the Siljander Amendment, the Biden Amendment. Um, do you, if confirmed, commit to uphold these restrictions in law? I do, Senator. Thank you for the question. Um, I'm very aware of those legal restrictions on the use of foreign assistance funds. And if confirmed, um, I will follow the letter of the law. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, we now have Senator Van Hollen by WebEx. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, and, and congratulations to all of you on your nominations. Uh, Senator Cardin said at the outset, um, you all are immensely qualified, and I, I look forward to supporting your, your nominations. Uh, Mr. Ratney, I do want to press you a little more on some of the issues that Senator Cardin and Senator Schatz uh, raised. Uh, you are, the last line of your, your testimony today uh, reads, quote, if confirmed, I will work hard to ensure that the U.S.-Saudi partnership serves U.S. interests and reflects U.S. values. 
I, I want to focus on the U.S. values uh, for a part. Because uh, I, I, I see you did not mention that Khashoggi in your, your testimony. Um, it is a fact, uh, is it not, that U.S. intelligence determined that uh, the Crown Prince did mastermind the Khashoggi murder? Senator, thank you. The, the president made a decision early in the administration to release the intelligence community assessment of responsibility for that, and I have no reason to differ with that assessment. And, you know, I've also got an article here uh, in my hand about uh, Saudi Arabia mass execution of, of 81 men. Uh, this was uh, in March of this year. Uh, you indicated in response to a question that uh, there was more transparency uh, now in the Saudi judicial uh, process. Um, I, I don't see it. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, actually, I would like to be clear on that because the point I wanted to make is that judicial transparency is a major element of our engagement with the Saudis. I wasn't trying to convey, and I think I may have misspoke, that that's something where we were lauding the Saudis for progress. Right. I don't see it now. I hope you'll be successful at pushing them in that uh, in that direction. Uh, you know, we all know that the president has an upcoming visit to Saudi Arabia. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, how uh, local uh, the president should be uh, in pressing uh, the human rights aspect of, of our policy? Uh, as you stated, and I agree, uh, putting human rights uh, back at the forefront of our foreign policy is was an important move by this administration. Can you can you talk a little bit more about how we should be uh, dealing with that in the context of Saudi Arabia? So I'm obviously not involved in the preparations for the president's visit, uh, but I know he's a man that believes in person-to-person uh, -person diplomacy. He also believes in having forthright conversations with our partners, even partners with whom we sometimes have uh, significant differences. Uh, he was the one that made the decision to put human rights at the center of US foreign policy. Uh, to elevate it as one of the major pillars of our engagement, not just in Saudi Arabia, but globally. Um, and I have every expectation that that will figure in his discussions in Saudi Arabia, which, uh, as you recall, is not just with the Saudis, but there's also a much broader meeting with GCC leaders, plus the Iraqis, Jordanians, and Egyptians. So I have every expectation that human rights in all its forms uh, will be a significant part of his program. Well, thank you uh, for that uh hopeful word, and I, I hope that the president uh, will also uh, pursue uh, that those principles vigorously uh, on his upcoming uh, trip. And it, it was great to uh, have a chance to meet you on one of my my most recent trip to Israel and Jerusalem. Thank you for your service there and your service elsewhere. And as I said, I, um, I, I look forward to supporting your nomination. Um, Dr. Wittes, um, congratulations on your nomination. As you know, uh, Putin's uh, brutal war against Ukraine has created price shocks uh, around the world in energy and food. And many countries uh, in, in the Middle East and North Africa uh, had been very reliant on Russian and Ukrainian uh, wheat. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about uh, AID's programs generally, not just in, the, in food assistance, but some of the, in some of the areas that have been hardest hit. Lebanon's been hard hit, already had a course, a desperate situation, uh, and in the, and the West Bank and Gaza have been highly dependent uh, on some of those uh, imports uh, for their, their wheat. Can you just talk broadly about USAID's efforts uh, in those areas uh, to advance U.S. interests? Senator, thank you. Um, 
Yes, as you noted, Russia's war on Ukraine and its blockade of the Black Sea ports has uh, prevented Ukraine from getting that wheat to the global market. And a lot of countries in our region are feeling the effects. Egypt, for example, normally imports half of its grain. Um, one of the activities that I understand USAID is engaged in there is helping Egypt produce more and keep what it produces because um, it, some of this wheat, when it's grown, is not properly stored and it spoils. So uh, USAID has a range of these kinds of food security activities around the region to promote higher yields, to manage water better, and to promote resilience to these kinds of shocks. But in the face of this global food security crisis, there is also a lot of emergency food aid USAID is providing around the region as well. Well, I'm going to um, ask you to follow up, I guess, in, in writing, since uh, my time's going to expire shortly, in terms of uh, some of the efforts USAID is undertaking, as I said, in Lebanon, uh, in the West Bank, uh, and in, in Gaza, as well as some of the other uh, parts of the region, uh, just with a little more uh, granularity. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Van Hollen. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and good morning. Congratulations to each of you on your nominations, and I look forward to working with you once confirmed. Dr. Gupta, I'd like to begin with you, um, because as you know, four out of the last five years, we have not had anyone as ambassador to the Office of Global Women's Issues, and so much of that opposition has been around Amen. women's reproductive health. And I think it's important to point out that what the Office of Global Women's Issues does has a lot more to do than just reproductive health for women, and that there are important reasons why we have an office that looks at half of the world's population and the important roles that women have to play in the world. So can you talk a little bit about why the Office of Global Women's Issues is so important and why we need to be thinking about um, what women are doing in the rest of the world. Thank you so much, um, Senator Shaheen. It's absolutely essential for the State Department that um, is, this, is the representative of US foreign policy to pay attention to women being half the population of this world. Um, there are many inequities and indignities that women suffer around the world, which hold them back from participating fully in the economy. Um, they are subject to threats to their safety um, and have a fear of violence even on a daily basis, and that determines their mobility. Um, and they, in situations of conflict and emergencies and humanitarian crises, are particularly vulnerable, both in terms of their safety but also in terms of their being able to look after their families and feed their families. So um, if you look at the world today, the situation of women, if you look at the gender inequality indicators, the indicators show that the inequality has increased. We have regressed uh, on gender equality because of the threats that we've had at the moment, which is the COVID-19 pandemic, which has kept women from the labor force, um, the climate crisis, the rise of authoritarianism, conflicts around the world. Um, so the priorities that the Office of Global Women's Issues has currently 
are the right ones given the reality of the world today because it focuses on um, advancing women's economic security and opportunity. It focuses on advancing the women, peace, and security agenda and uh, preventing and responding to gender-based violence. And those seem to me to be the three most important priorities today. And those have been identified in the national strategy that the US has just put out on gender equality and equity, the first ever national strategy for both uh, domestic and global uh, issues. And I think that those are the right ones from my point of view. Well, thank you. I certainly agree with that. Can you also speak to what empowering women does for their families, for their communities, and for their countries? Women play essential roles at the household and community level. They are the frontline caretakers and mothers of children. They are the providers and processors and producers of food. And they are income earners. And they are leaders within their communities. So, and yet they face disadvantages in being able to access productive resources such as employment, education, income, land, etc. Um, that puts them at a disadvantage to fully uh, play their roles. So by disadvantaging them in that way, you are holding them back, but you're also holding back their families, their households, their communities, and the economies of entire nations. So um, in fact, a McKinsey report recently identified that, um, that it, you know, in 2015, that the cost to the global GDP is about $28 trillion over a 10-year period if those inequality indicators were not improved, if the gap was not closed. So it has economic consequences as well as it's a rights issue. Thank you very much. Dr. Wittes, uh, I'm very concerned about the situation in Lebanon. It's one of the countries in the Middle East that has um, significant challenges, the impact on um, young people and their interest in staying in the country and offering a future there. Can you talk about what our focus is right now on Lebanon and what we can do to help um, address the challenges that the country's facing? Senator, thank you for the question. Um, the situation in Lebanon is quite dire. Uh, the humanitarian situation, the economic situation. There is an opportunity now because of the successful conduct of parliamentary elections last month. Um, I was able to serve as an international observer in the previous two rounds of Lebanese parliamentary elections, and I was really encouraged to see that they were able to hold those elections. I think that the new government now has uh, both the opportunity and the need to focus urgently on some long overdue reforms. I understand that there's an agreement with the IMF that would include reforms in the banking sector that could really start to stabilize the economy. Um, on the humanitarian side, as, as you know, and as Senator Van Hollen mentioned, there is uh, a shortage of, of wheat globally, and Lebanon does not have domestic storage because of this horrific explosion at the Beirut port. Uh, it can only store about one month or so of grain locally. Uh, so USAID has been providing em emergency food packages to Lebanese, uh, and it's also working with civil society and working with municipalities. To your question about um, keeping young people in the country, 
Uh, USAID also, as I understand it, has had a focus on trying to grow the private sector uh, and trying to create a better environment for the private sector so that young people feel those opportunities and we don't see brain drain. Well, thank you very much. I'm out of time, but I would just um, close with an admonition that I hope each of you will work on what's continuing to get worse in Afghanistan with respect to the rights of women and um, the economy in that country. So it's something that I think each of you have the ability in your new roles to have some influence on, and I hope you will really look at that opportunity. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Davis, uh, Cutter certainly is a strategic partner of the United States, defense, other issues. Uh, they have serious human rights issues on their worker. Uh, those uh, those uh, have come to their country being protected with uh, internationally recognized uh, labor rights. So tell me how you are going to prioritize that concern we have if you're confirmed as our representative in Qatar. Uh, Senator, thank you for the question. First, I want to note that I share your concern about Qatar's human rights record. Um, they have made progress. Um, they were the first country in the Middle East to have a minimum wage law. Uh, they've instituted a, tri instituted a tribunal uh, to adjudicate uh, cases of uh, labor abuse. Um, uh, they've set up a fund uh, to help uh, compensate uh, employees uh, who have not received their wages. Um, and uh, specific to uh, the World Cup, they have um, a regulation uh, that bans working uh, in the hottest part of the day. Uh, my own work uh, in southern Iraq, uh, where uh, I saw similar labor and human rights abuses, um, uh, informs how I view this. Uh, often it is a case where it is not a lack of will, but a lack of capacity. Um, our trafficking persons report lays out um, avenues uh, for the Qatari government to improve their human rights record. Uh, the Department of Justice uh, Human Trafficking uh, Prosecution Unit uh, has been working with the Qatari government. Um, it's not enough to uh, want to prosecute uh, abuses of labor and human rights, uh, you have to build that capacity. If confirmed, um, uh, I would think uh, that we would be able to bring experts uh, to Qatar to help uh, build uh, the capacity of the judicial system, uh, of lawyers, of prosecutors, uh, of police. Uh, domestic violence uh, issues um, cannot stop with arrest. Uh, they have to be followed through to prosecution. Uh, for the United States, there's not a calendar or a clock or a deadline on our advocacy for human rights. Uh, Qatar has made a number of strides in the lead up to the World Cup. If confirmed, it will be one of my highest priorities uh, to work with the Qatari government uh, to solidify the gains that they've made, uh, but also to move them forward uh, in, uh, in labor and human rights reform. Uh, it won't be easy, uh, but it is something that is, uh, as noted, a pillar of US foreign policy, uh, and I will not hesitate if confirmed to raise at the highest levels of the Qatari government our concerns about human rights and labor rights. Thank you very much. Dr. Wittes, I just really want to reinforce the comments that were made by Senator Young and uh, Senator Portman in regards to the Abraham Accords. I was uh, in our conversation before we started the hearing, I was at a dinner last night, a unique opportunity where the 
ambassador from UAE hosted the Israeli ambassador's uh, visit to the, uh, the placement in the United States. We had to postpone it a little bit because of COVID. And it was a stark moment to see Israel and an Arab state co-hosting an event here. So it was a, a wonderful occasion. One of the articles that were circulated under your tweet during the initial um, consideration of the APM Accords was very critical that there was no concessions made by the Israelis uh, in entering into the agreement with UAE. I mention that because there was a major uh, progress made in getting Israel off of the annexation issue, which could have been rather explosive. Uh, and that was done by the UAE without the expansion to the other countries of the Abraham Accords. So there was a significant reason to celebrate the UAE and Israel uh, reaching an, uh, an agreement on normalization. I just point that out because I've heard your response and I understand your, your commitment to further normalization in the region. But once you know there was a lot of sensitivity at that time, uh, we try to conduct as much foreign policy as we can not on partisan grounds. We really try to, to work together to strengthen our country uh, on foreign policy uh, issues. With that, uh, Senator Haggerty, please. Senator Haggerty. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, Mr. Radney, I'd like to first turn to you um, to talk with you about um, the, the country that you're intending to represent uh, the United States to. Um, you know, American families are suffering everywhere from high gas prices, and I understand that President Biden is on his way to Saudi Arabia next month, presumably to ask the Saudis to um, produce more oil and bail the United States out of this energy disaster that the Biden administration has created based on its uh, war on the American fossil fuel industry. This trip comes not long after President Biden, during his presidential campaign in a Democratic presidential debate, decided that he would turn Saudi Arabia into a, quote, pariah. And he added that there is, quote, very little social redeeming value in the present government in Saudi Arabia. Those are his words during the presidential debate. I actually believe that the Saudis can be a very critical partner to us in the Middle East. And I'd first like to know if you agree with President Biden's stated posture towards Saudi Arabia. Thanks for the question, Senator. Uh, I don't think I'm in a position to comment on uh, comments that the president made uh, during the campaign or more than a year ago. I can tell you what he's said uh, since he's been president. I can tell you what he has been determined to do since he's been president, and that is to carve out a relationship with the Saudi government that both advances U.S. interests and also reflects U.S. values. And we have vast U.S. interests in Saudi Arabia, including, as you point out, a conversation about uh, energy prices, gas prices that we're facing here in global turbulence in energy markets. There's a lot of other things ending the war in Yemen, cooperating on counterterrorism, pushing back on Iran's nefarious activities in the region that threaten us and our partners, and at the same time advancing our values. So I have every expectation that the president will use this trip, uh, which he's making to Saudi Arabia, in addition to conversations with other Gulf leaders and other Middle Eastern leaders to have forthright discussions about responsible role Saudi well, do you, Arabia. Do you agree that our diplomatic relations are better off uh, without an antagonistic relationship with a country as important as Saudi Arabia? I don't think I would relish the possibility of being U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia if I thought an antagonistic relationship was a good direction to go in. 
Um, I think uh, my colleagues in our leadership in this administration agree with that. And well, if you're confirmed, you're going to have a lot to clean up, I think, given the situation as it, as it, occur, as it exists right now. I'd like to turn now to your time as Consul General in Jerusalem. Uh, under your watch, the State Department provided $465,000 in grants to a group called One Voice, which then joined a group called Victory 15 and worked to defeat Benjamin Netanyahu and his Likud party in Israel's elections. This struck many observers, including me, as highly inappropriate, if not unethical, especially given that the Obama administration disagreed with Netanyahu and his many policies, including the Iran nuclear deal. I understand that the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations reviewed this case and reported out its findings, and according to that report, one voice's pivot to electoral politics was consistent with its strategic plan that was developed by One Voice leadership. One Voice had emailed this strategic plan to the State Department officials during the grant period. However, the State Department placed no limitations on the post-grant use of resources developed by One Voice using the funds provided by the United States. Again, there were no limitations placed on how the resources of the funds would be used. Uh, the grant was just given by the State Department, even though the State Department had their strategic plan in hand. I think it's a failure of the State Department, again, under your watch, to take the necessary steps to guard against the risk that one voice would engage in political activities to unseat a particular foreign head of government. So I want to ask you, Mr. Ratney, given that one voice engaged in political activism in the 2013 Israel elections, before applying for a State Department grant, how was it that you failed to foresee and guard against this risk? The ease of that would have, you know, that, that recipient organizations can use to repurpose public diplomacy resources is something that's very concerning, and I am very concerned about what happened here. Thanks for the question, and I do recall the incident, and I recall my work there. Uh, I was responsible for oversight of a piece of that grant, which was to the Palestinian component of One Voice, which was responsible for essentially building grassroots support for a two-state solution in the negotiating process that was uh, underway at that point. Um, the uh, Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations that Senator Portman chaired at the time looked into it, as you mentioned, and uh, noted a few deficiencies in the way that that grant was handled, one of which is exactly what you point out, which is there was no restriction in the grant agreement for how they would use the data. In this case, it was a database and some other things that they had developed um, in the process of doing the work. The sort of Well, I think it's work. extremely concerning that that failure occur, but I want to ask you one more question <clears throat> before my time is expended. Do you dispute what was reported in the, in the findings that you deleted emails related to the review of these One Voice grants? No, so the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations identified two shortcomings. One had to do with the administration of the grant, which we talked about, which was that there was no prohibition on political activity organization using yep. it later. That is something that I've made clear in my conversations with the staff on the Permanent Subcommittee that would be unacceptable had we known about it. The other problem was had to do with a, a systemic issue associated with records management at the State Department that has since been addressed. There was no routine method, there was no routine way at that time to archive all of the routine emails that uh, the State Department sent and received. That has since been uh, remedied as well through changes in policy and changes in technology. To be clear, did you delete emails that were re relevant to this? Did you specifically pursue those emails and remove them from the so record? So as, as I recall what happened at the time, and I want to be very precise about this because it's an important issue. Um, at the time, this is somewhat of a technical issue, but at the time, the State Department, the email systems didn't have the storage capacity to retain large numbers of emails in people's inboxes. So we were routinely instructed by, and this was not unique to me, we were routinely instructed by our IT staff that if you don't delete emails, especially those with large attachments, 
your inbox freezes and you stop getting emails. So that was a systemic problem that was addressed both by improvements in the technology and also a change to the policy about archiving of these messages. Well, you can understand my concern over that part of it, but my even deeper concern is that funds were allowed to go to an organization that was gonna take direct action against one of our political allies and get involved politically in that manner. I think it's a great oversight and, and it creates grave concern for me. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I would note that I think the Democratic majority on this committee may have inadvertently convened a hearing on the profound anti-Israel bias of the Biden administration. I very much agree with the questions Senator Haggerty just asked about Mr. Ratney's involvement in sending taxpayer funds to a group that employed Obama political operatives to run a campaign against the sitting prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, and to undermine our friend and ally, Israel. But as disturbing as that conduct was, Ms. Wittes' conduct is even more concerning. Ms. Wittes, if you're confirmed, you'll be in charge of distributing vast amounts of funding across the Middle East. Since 2015, the Brookings Institution that employs you has taken at least $12.5 million from the Embassy of Qatar. That's the amount that can be traced publicly. Just four days ago, the president of Brookings resigned in a scandal because he's facing an investigation for being an undisclosed lobbyist for Qatar. And he resigned because he said, I know it is best for all concerned at the moment. Now, the president of Brookings has resigned over this, but you ran the Middle East Center at Brookings. To what extent did you participate in fundraising from Qatar? Senator, thank you. I want to be very clear. I had no knowledge of any of these disturbing allegations regarding General Allen. Um, I didn't discuss research on Qatar with General Allen. I did not do fundraising meetings for foreign governments with General Allen. So did you know that your work was being paid for by Qatar? Yes, sir. Okay, so you knew you were funded by, by a foreign embassy. Uh, yes, sir. We had funding from several foreign governments, including the Norwegians and the Emiratis. Well, the Norwegians and Emiratis don't work to undermine us, and they don't work to undermine Israel. The Qataris do. Did you participate in any way in the fundraising? I participated in one fundraising meeting in, I think, 2012. Okay, just a all. second ago you said you didn't participate in the fundraising. Not with General yeah. Allen, sir. General Allen became president after I stepped down as director. But you participated in 2012 in fundraising from the Qataris? I sat in a meeting in which Ambassador Indyk was uh, asking for a renewal of our grant. Okay, you published a report with the Qatari Ministry of Foreign Affairs logo on the cover of it, correct? Senator, we had a grant agreement with the Qataris to conduct a joint conference, which we did in Doha every year. Okay, the president of Brookings just resigned over allegations that he was an unregistered lobbyist for Qatar. Did you register as a, as a lobbyist for Qatar? No, sir, I never conducted advocacy for Qatar. Should the president of Brookings have resigned over this? Was he right to do so? Senator, I cannot speak to what General Allen did or did not do. Should the I same no standards knowledge. apply to you? Senator, the rules at Brookings were very clear. We received regular trainings on FARA compliance. I had no problem understanding the rules. 
Should the American taxpayers be concerned that, that President Biden wants to put in charge of distributing millions of dollars of taxpayer money, someone who has spent years being funded by a foreign nation who is not our friend? Senator, I think my research and the research that I supervised was conducted with complete independence from all of our donors. But it was it funded by the Qataris. It was funded by the Qataris, and it just happened to so comply with their agenda that they put their damn logo on the cover, correct? Senator, they did not put their logo on any uh, of the You put research. their logo on the cover. No, sir. Their Who put logo, the logo is not on the research. Who put the logo on the cover? Senator, of the report you published? The logo Did is, you put the logo or did they? Senator, we co-produced a conference. Okay, so you both put the logo. All right, I want to shift to another topic. You know, the Biden administration claims to support the Abraham Accords. I got to say, your record on the Abraham Accords is stunning. It's one thing for your colleague, Mr. Ratney, to fund political campaigns against the sitting prime minister of Israel. But when the Abraham Accords came out in September 2020, you tweeted that Arab leaders should not deepen ties with Israel until they saw whether President Trump won re-election. Why were you urging Arab countries not to deepen ties with Israel? Senator, I was skeptical when the Emiratis made their announcement, which was breathtaking in August 2020. I was skeptical that other Arab states would join them. And but you I was, urged them not to. I was proven wrong. But you urged them not to. So they didn't follow your advice. But you wanted them not to make peace with Israel. No, Senator, I did not urge I was All right, you tweeted that peace between Israel and the UAE was a new Naqsa setback. You also said it was a triumph for authoritarianism and just a normalization of men, which I don't know what the hell that means. Why did you actively lobby against historic peace accords in the Middle East? And, and how could anyone have any confidence that you can be a senior government official? Senator, I support the accords. I support the profound transformation. Well, I get that's brought. the right political answer to say now, but it's not what you said then. Senator, those are not my words. I tweeted out two articles critical of the accords, one by an Israeli and one by an Egyptian. Both All right, final question on, on the Egyptians. You have tweeted that Egyptian President Sisi is running a Reich that is a fascist regime. How exactly do you think you're going to be able to work with our Egyptian allies when you've called their president a Nazi? Senator, those are not my words. You didn't say uh, he, he's running a, a Reich? No, Senator. I have no recollection of ever using those words about President Sisi. Well, I'm going to follow up in writing uh, because the record is clear, but it is really stunning. The anti-Israel bias of senior nominees in this administration, and it is inconsistent both with American national security interest and with standing in our, with our friend and ally, the state of Israel. Senator Young, anything further? Just picking up on, on one uh, loose thread, uh, Ms. Witte, you're director of the Center for Middle East Policy at Brookings, and uh, did you disclose your organization received funding from Qatar? Did you disclose that matter? Uh, yes, sir, including when I testified before Congress, as you know, the forms require it. Okay. Um, 
with respect to Mr. Davis, uh, with respect to uh, the U.S. Embassy uh, to Qatar and its interaction with the U.S. Embassy to Afghanistan, which will be operating from Doha, it's really important that this committee, uh, we're so distracted by uh, many challenges around the world, doesn't lose sight of, of the uh, trying situation in Afghanistan in the wake of, of the botched uh, exit. If confirmed, how would you coordinate actions between those two embassies? Uh, thank you for the question, Senator. <clears throat> I want to make sure that I uh, make note and honor uh, your service uh, as a U.S. Marine. Uh, when um, the evacuation of Afghanistan uh, began in August, uh, I, like you probably were, were inundated uh, with former uh, fellow Marines, uh, former uh, soldiers, and, and folks who had known uh, interpreters, um, uh, spotters, uh, people, Afghans who had worked with us for uh, years and years. Uh, and so I take personally uh, the responsibility, um, uh, confirmation notwithstanding, uh, to ensure that we're helping our, uh, our allies, uh, which is uh, what they were. Um, I had a number of sleepless nights in August, 24-7, uh, uh, trying to help people get out of the country. Uh, your question uh, is an important one. Uh, and one that I think uh, requires uh, a sitting ambassador, a confirmed ambassador, uh, to coordinate the efforts and the message of the Afghanistan Affairs Unit uh, that's now in Doha, uh, the bilateral mission, uh, bilateral mission uh, which I would head if confirmed, uh, and our care colleagues who are working uh, with uh, Afghans waiting to be uh, relocated. Uh, and so uh, my role, uh, if confirmed, as the head of the bilateral mission, will be to coordinate a uh, message uh, to ensure uh, commu communication is happening all of the time uh, between uh, U.S. entities uh, in uh, Doha. To include the work of uh, Special Envoy Tom West, um, we cannot uh, have uh, competing messages coming from any of those four entities. Uh, I think the idea of uh, of folks from any of them being able to go into the foreign ministry to make requests of the cutteries uh, without having coordinated uh, will only lead to uh, slowing down the process. Uh, and as we've learned uh, over the last uh, nine or 10 months, uh, any delay uh, in uh, assistance and help uh, to those who fought alongside us and helped us in Afghanistan over two decades uh, can, be, um, can be fatal. Uh, and so it will be a major priority for me uh, to make sure that we're speaking with one voice uh, to the Qataris uh, and uh, to those in Afghanistan uh, whose assistance is absolutely vital. Well, thank you. Uh, I understand that further clarity uh, will come uh, post-confirmation on, it, on uh, exactly how the interaction will occur, and, and uh, I'll look forward to working with you um, in, in uh, overseeing those responsibilities, and I know others uh, will as well. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Young. Uh, th let me just follow up on points that were raised by my colleagues. Mr. Ratney, if I understand correctly, uh, your role with One Voice dealt with the outreach to the Palestinian community. That's right. And that you were in compliance with all of the policies of the State Department during that period of time 
as well as the technology that was available in regards to how emails were handled and um, stored to the extent they could be stored and deleted because of capacity. Is, is that, that That's correct. And if I might add, the subcommittee report made clear that the grant funds were used for their intended purpose. So I, I think you've clarified that point, and I, I don't I really think there's any misunderstanding here, but let me just ask for the record. If confirmed, do you, do you agree to adhere to all of the State Department rules and regulations regarding record keeping and the retention of emails? Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, uh, Dr. Wittes, uh, in regards to your relationships at Brookings, it's my understanding that you complied with all the rules of the Brookings that had in regards to foreign participation and funds, and that you made all the disclosures that were required by law, and you complied with all of the federal rules at the time. Absolutely, Senator. Thank you. Uh, I have no further uh, questions. Let me, uh, if I might, uh, announce that the record will remain open until close of business Friday, June 17th, for questions for the record. I would urge uh, our nominees to try to complete those answers as rapidly and as thoroughly as possible so that we can try to clear for committee action uh, your nominations as quickly as possible. Uh, it, it, each of you have critical positions that we need confirmed representatives and ambassadors, so we would urge you to try to complete this work as quickly as possible. If there is no further business, the committee will stand adjourned.